Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. A new report finds that humanity has wiped out 60% of all animal life since 1970. This is from The Guardian. This report came from the World Wildlife Fund and involved 59 scientists from across the globe. The Living Planet Index, produced for WWF by the Zoological Society of London, uses data on 16,704 populations of mammals, birds, fish, reptiles, and amphibians, representing more than 4,000 species, to track the decline of wildlife. Between 1970 and 2014, the latest data available, populations fell by an average of 60%. Four years ago, the decline was 52%. Mike Barrett, Executive Director of Science and Conservation at WWF, said, The shocking truth is that the wildlife crash is continuing unabated. He goes on to say, This is far more than just about losing the wonders of nature, desperately sad though that is. This is actually now jeopardizing the future of people. Nature is not a, quote, nice to have. It is our life support system. Professor Bob Watson, one of the world's most eminent environmental scientists and currently chair of an intergovernmental panel on biodiversity, states, Nature contributes to human well-being culturally and spiritually, as well as through the critical production of food, clean water, and energy, and through regulating the Earth's climate, pollution, pollination, and floods. The Living Planet Report clearly demonstrates that human activities are destroying nature at an unacceptable rate, threatening the well-being of current and future generations. And continuing from The Guardian, the biggest cause of wildlife losses is the destruction of natural habitats, much of it to create farmland. Three-quarters of all land on Earth is now significantly affected by human activities. Killing for food is the next biggest cause. 300 mammal species are being eaten into extinction, while the oceans are massively overfished, with more than half now being industrially fished. Chemical pollution is also significant. Half the world's killer whale populations are now doomed to die from PCB contamination. Global trade introduces invasive species and disease, with amphibians decimated by fungal disease thought to be spread by the pet trade. The habitats suffering the greatest damage are rivers and lakes, where wildlife populations have fallen 83% due to the enormous thirst of agriculture and the large number of dams. Barrett states, quote, again, there's this direct link between the food system and the depletion of wildlife. Eating less meat is an essential part of reversing losses. According to The Guardian, the world's nations are working towards a crunch meeting of the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity in 2020, when new commitments for the protection of nature will be made. Tanya Steele, chief executive at WWF, said, We are the first generation to know we are destroying our planet and the last one that can do anything about it. What do you think of that, Peter? I think we're screwed, Lori. I don't know. Scary stuff here. It's just horrible. Okay, well, on a lighter and somewhat more positive note, I've got a little President Trump news. He signed an environmental bill into law. How about that? Great. This is called the Save Our Seas Act, and it actually reauthorizes the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Marine Debris Program. And that keeps it going on through 2022. This bill was sponsored by U.S. Representative, a Republican, Dan Sullivan from Alaska, And what it does is uh, continues to authorize $10 million per year for the next five years. The program works to reduce ocean debris through research, prevention, and reduction. 
everyone is aware of the big problem with plastics in our seas and plastics everywhere in our environment. According to Ocean Conservancy, more than half of the estimated 8 million metric tons of plastic littering the world's oceans come from a handful of developing countries in Southeast Asia. And of course, President Trump used this opportunity to display his nationalistic tendencies by uh, criticizing those countries. Here's what he said. This waste, trash, and debris harms not only marine life, but also fishermen, coastal economies along Americans' vast stretches. The bad news is it floats toward us. I've seen pictures recently, and some of you have seen them. Where It's hard to read Trump. I know, I know. <laughs> I've seen pictures recently, and some of you have seen them, where there's a vast, tremendous, unthinkable amount of garbage is floating right into our coast, in particular along the West Coast. And also, he was uh, pretty critical toward China and Japan for being two countries that are responsible for a large amount of the debris. Uh, he continued, it's incredible when you look at it. People don't realize it, but all the time we're being inundated by debris from other countries. And a little more of uh, U.S. versus other countries. He said, as he signed the bill, as president, I will continue to do everything I can to stop other nations from making our oceans into their landfills. That's why I'm pleased very pleased, I must say, to put my signature on this important legislation. Good for him. Good for us. Good for the oceans. And uh, bipartisan and... Little of his environmental concerns coming out now? Well, I think this was a slam dunk for him yeah, anyway, I know. you know, I know. but at least it's something. Peter, I have one to share with you. Okay. A bunch of celebrities are coming together to fight against the dog racing industry. So you have people like Ellen DeGeneres and Owen Wilson and others trying to encourage Floridians to vote to remove the state's Greyhound racing tracks. Apparently, there's a recent proposed constitutional amendment that would see Greyhound racing being discontinued in Florida by the year 2020. And since 11 of our nation's 17 Greyhound tracks are located in Florida, this would have a huge impact on the industry. Mm. So as more and more people are learning about the immense suffering and cruelty inherent in greyhound racing, like 8,000 greyhounds live in confinement at Florida racing tracks, where they are kept in cages so small they often cannot stand or turn around for 20 to 23 hours per day. Dogs frequently suffer serious injuries, including broken bones, and are sometimes subject to being illegally drugged in order to improve their performance. And according to acting president of the Humane Society of the United States, Kitty Block, a dog dies on a track in Florida every three days. So this amendment would be Amendment 13. So hopefully any Floridians listening to the show will vote yes on 13. That's really interesting. It's especially that you would need a constitutional amendment to get them closed down. In past shows, we've talked about efforts to close dog racing tracks, and I'm really surprised that this many remain open now. We also talked about the ways tracks are trying to keep their finances going by becoming sort of hybrid businesses with the gambling. But certainly similar to horse racing, it's very cruel, and, and you're right, it's really an inherently uh, cruel activity. Okay, well, we'll follow this and we'll let you know what happens. Yeah. One of our cats, Elton, just jumped up on the recording table. Did you hear his purring, Peter? Mm -hmm. Okay, can we get back to work now, Elton? Did you have enough? Laura, you know that uh, company Beyond Meat? Yeah. They are a uh, vegetable-based meat alternative company. They're growing very quickly. Well, rumor has it that they are getting ready for an IPO. Wow. They're going to go public so we all can invest in Beyond Meat. 
They've had a couple of, uh, you know, private rounds, and they are growing so fast that in many stores where they have their patties, they're being placed in the meat refrigerator, and they are actually selling more product than meat. How about that? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, that's really going crazy. I've seen them in the vegetarian sections of the supermarkets, in the you know frozen frozen sections. But in many stores, they're in the meat section, which is really in- incredible. Yeah. This company, they make patties, they make products they call sausages, crumbles, and chicken strips, all vegetable-based. And of course, we know the environmental benefits, besides the health benefits and the uh, humane benefits of uh, consuming these products and others like them, right, compared to animal products. Here's an example of the environmental impact, a Beyond Burger, which is their patty, versus a quarter-pound beef burger, okay? So to create that patty, when you do a life cycle analysis, it requires 99% less water, 93% less land, 90% fewer greenhouse gas emissions are released in the production, and 46% less energy. That's huge. So that's pretty compelling, if you ask me, yeah. Not to mention the health benefits for you as well. Yeah. I have to say, I will admit, I did not predict how fast this would take off. Just a few years ago, I was uh, pretty skeptical. I thought it would be too expensive. There wouldn't be a lot of buy-in. But this is just wonderful news, so I'm very excited. So the uh, CEO is named Ethan Brown, and there are interviews online with him. He's an interesting uh, guy, a real uh, visionary, if you ask me. If you put a Beyond Burger in a patty with it all dressed up like a regular hamburger and gave it to your father, would he notice the difference? Uh, he probably wouldn't. You say, this is a pretty good burger here, right? Really, I don't think he would know. Yeah. Yeah. In Indiana, Lori, I've got a little legal news for you. This is a fascinating a veterinarian who is working for a group called Wildlife in Need in Charlestown, Indiana. He performed declawing on 12 tigers they had. And he was sued by PETA. They filed a suit against him personally alleging that he violated the Endangered Species Act by declawing these cats without a medical reason. Well, the veterinarian defendant uh, decided to settle this. He's not happy about it, but really wanted to get it behind him. But the more important aspect of this was PETA's legal strategy to use the Endangered Species Act as a hammer against an individual a person performing what he believed to be his legal duties for a nonprofit. Evidently, this is the first time that uh, this is being used. And of course, PETA is claiming that they've got a precedent here. They tend to, I think, overstate these things a little bit. We've learned about that. But it is uh, interesting, and we'll see uh, if the ESA is used in any further cases against individuals. Yes, but you can't overstate the fact that declawing is absolutely cruel and inhumane and painful for the cat, whether a big cat or a small cat. Yeah, yeah, of course, we agree with that. And Lori, here's an interesting bit of crow news. You ready? Crow news? Yes. You know, uh, crows are very smart. Yeah. And the New Caledonian crow, they are known to use spontaneously. They use tools in the wild. And so researchers in Germany wanted to uh, see if they could bring it to the next level. And they created a little puzzle for them. They put food in a box and they gave them a collection of little sticks, little implements that they could use to reach the food that was in the box. But they had to combine two of these sticks. One slid into the other to make it long enough to reach the food. And you know what? The birds, half of them, 
figured out how to do this rather quickly. It wasn't just random trial and error. They appeared to be able to figure it out. That's so Isn't smart. that amazing? Yes. And no crows were harmed in this experiment. That's right. One of the researchers said that making this compound tool, it's as if they were able to predict its properties and see that something that does not yet exist envision what it would do. Okay, Lori, more with animals today after the break. back to the show. Did you know that one of the most common chronic conditions in cats is diabetes? Not long ago, I had a chance to speak with a dear veterinarian friend of mine, Dr. Douglas Coons, medical director of VCA Desert Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California, to learn all about this condition. And here it is. Dr. Coons, thanks for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here, Lori. I know diabetes in cats is getting a lot more common than it used to be. Dr. Coons, can you tell us why? Well, the the big reason is uh, we're seeing a, an epidemic of obesity in cats, and the kind of diabetes that cats get is the type 2 diabetes, which is what happens to many of us uh, humans as we get older and uh, pack on a little bit of weight, and uh, it predisposes us to developing that kind of diabetes. It's not juvenile diabetes. That's very uncommon in cats. It's rare. Right. How is diabetes in cats usually diagnosed? Well, usually somebody notices their cat uh, is drinking a lot of water and all of a sudden the litter box is, uh, they're having to change it more often because there's so much moisture there. Uh, They may notice a little bit of weight loss, a scruffy hair coat with flaky skin, uh, but mainly the the increased water consumption and and increased urination are the, the reason that people most commonly bring the kitties to us. Is the onset of diabetes fairly acute or is it more gradual? You know, sometimes we'll see acute or rapid onset of diabetes when it's associated with uh, uh, pancreatitis, which is an inflammation of the pancreas, which is the organ that produces insulin. And of course, insulin regulates your blood sugar. And and diabetes is defined as uh, inadequate insulin production or a delayed insulin production. When we eat a meal, normally that evokes a a response from the pancreas to secrete insulin, and if that doesn't happen, it causes problems. Dr. Coons, I read that diabetes is more common in male cats. Is that right? That's true. In fact, you know, an interesting thing, I I did a little research, so I had all my facts at hand, that the prevalence of diabetes is 1 in 200 cats. That that's huge. Wow, that is huge. And yeah. do you think diabetes is more common than, say, 10 years ago, primarily because there are more indoor cats and thus less activity and exercise? That's correct, Lori. And it's good that we have our cats inside because right, it's much, much safer for our kitties, but we've developed a generation of couch potatoes. Right. You know, they don't have the activity of, of being outdoors and and, of course, that's for their protection. They're not getting hit by cars or they're not ending up a meal for some coyote. From the other standpoint, it's better to keep those kitties inside because they're predators. And our endangered species in the area can be affected by the predation from, from feral cats particularly, but, but by our own domestic cats too. So we have to modify what we do with our kitties since we keep them indoors and 
We need to devise ways of exercise. Feathers. toys. Yeah. Chasing a laser beam. Right. They love that. Uh, but you need to spend some time with your kitty, which pays benefits uh, uh, in many ways. Also, diet is important. Cats are true carnivores. Mm-hmm. Um, their dogs are omnivores. They can eat uh, meat or, or carbohydrates, vegetable source proteins, and do very well. But our cats really can't. Their livers act, or lack the enzymes to properly metabolize carbohydrates. So our dry diets particularly are, are higher carbohydrate diets and can tend to predispose a cat to diabetes, whereas a canned diet has a Number one, a lower caloric density, but it also, uh, most of those are meat-based diets, and the cat really needs a meat-based diet. So proper diet is very important, but may not prevent the cat from developing diabetes. Well, if, if it helps to prevent weight gain, it'll help prevent the diabetes. But And we find a few of the cats that we diagnose with diabetes, just by correcting the diet, we correct the diabetes. We don't have to go to uh, insulin shots, which are usually twice a day. So just as in humans, if the individual or the cat loses weight, the disease can be eliminated or at least be better controlled. And similarly, exercise is encouraged, again, to prevent, help control, or even eliminate the disease. Is that correct? Absolutely. Is it hard to administer insulin? No, it's really pretty easy. Monitoring is very important. And so a person who's diabetic may be checking their blood sugar multiple times during the day. With cats, we don't need to do that. We give very low doses of insulin, usually one unit twice a day, maybe two units at most. Uh, if we go over that, usually we have to look for complicating factors. And so usually we recommend a dose, one unit twice a day, and once a month we'll check what's called a fructosamine level, which gives us more of a a global view of their blood sugar than just doing a blood sugar. Just one blood sugar really doesn't do a lot. And trying to do a glucose curve on a cat where we we check blood sugars every two hours over a 12-hour period, cats don't lend themselves. That, That can freak a cat out. And, and their blood sugar can go haywire just because of stress. So we do better with a fixed dose of insulin, checking the fructosamine once a month until we have it regulated, and then every three months. Mm-hmm. Doug, some people put medical alert tags on their cats to indicate they are diabetic. The same thing can be done on a microchip, right? I know one of the microchip companies, Home Again, uh, you can call in and post the history associated with that microchip so that if your kitty gets out and gets picked up and is uh, scanned at the animal shelter and found to be diabetic, when they call for the information on the cat, they're not only given the the, uh, owner's name, but they're also given the medical history, such as diabetes. So, you know, it's it's another way, along with the medical alert, to alert people that you've got a kitty with a problem. Yeah. Dr. Kunz, what happens to a cat if diabetes goes undiagnosed and untreated? Well, they become what is called ketoacidotic. Their system develops too much acid and their liver fails and they they really get into trouble and can die. So, Dr. Kunz, any change of behavior or weight loss, lethargy, litter box looks or smells differently or unusual should warrant a visit to your veterinarian right away, right? Absolutely, and particularly if you're seeing that increased water consumption and all of a sudden 
Yeah, you know, you're needing to change that litter box more often. Yeah. That, that's that's the red flag. Dr. Coons, we really appreciate you coming on Animals Today to educate us about feline diabetes. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Every once in a while, you hear in the news about a dog, a family pet being shot by police officers. Uh, Maybe they're pursuing somebody or they feel they're being threatened. And it's always a big issue in the news and everyone gets all upset and wonders whether it was needed and what the training is. It raises a lot of issues, doesn't it? So we really wanted to explore this because I think we've identified... Uh, a program and an individual who's really trying to do something about this whole issue. His name is John Thompson. He is Deputy Executive Director and COO at National Sheriff's Association. Hi, John. Hey, how are you today? So how big a problem is the shooting of pet dogs by law enforcement? Well, again, no hard data, but we do know it's it's quite rampant. Um, it's uh, there are several web pages that um, show each incident where it happens. We don't know how how true those uh, that data is or information, but um, they've created a website I think called Puppy Side. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but even driving that is really what it, what the important factor is. That it is a problem today. It's a problem because our law enforcement officers are not being trained. Uh, or advised of information they need prior to getting involved in incidents with animals. So a lot of the officers, they did not grow up having uh, dogs as pets, and they're just not naturally uh, good at knowing the signs or what's a dangerous situation, things like that? Yeah, and I mean, I'm a perfect example. I mean, I was uh, 30 years in law enforcement, and I never was, uh, well, one, I never had a dog, so I really wasn't attuned to having a pet uh, or an animal. Um, I didn't receive any training. It was just, it was common practice that, you know, if a dog came at you snarling and growling, uh, you just shot the dog, mm. you know, and you pushed him off the side of the road, you call animal control, come pick him up. Uh, that's the days that, that the way they were. And, and unfortunately, 
uh, or fortunately, I should say, that society has changed it the way we look at animals and the way we look at companion animals. But unfortunately, uh, the law enforcement profession just has not caught up to that. And that's no different than what we saw during the 70s and 80s of the de- domestic violence movements. Uh, you know, officers didn't understand uh, the dynamics of domestic violence. And so it took a long time to do that. So, so yeah, we, we have a problem. Uh, the problem stems from uh, lack of knowledge uh, and culture and many other things. But I think that we're making progress. I think that uh, I, in my six or seven years of fighting this, I think I'm seeing uh, good results, not as fast as I'd like to, but, but seeing good results and, and seeing people change, uh, just like the sheriff of Chester County, PA, who, who basically trained every one of her dog, every one of her deputies, uh, on how to deal with uh, animal encounters and then put catch poles in every one of the uh, sheriff's vehicles. Mm. That, that's progress. Yeah. So how did you get interested in this area? Well, like I said, I, I never had a dog. I was fairly animal neutral, didn't really care much about uh, animals at all. And um, I happened to get a, uh, a little shih tzu years and years ago from my wife, and I gave him to her and said, here, your dog, take care of him. Um, and long story short, we, uh, we bonded. Uh, remember, he kept trying to be friends to me. And one, one Saturday morning, we took off in the woods and had a, a long couple-mile walk and afterwards became best friends. And, and he changed my life. I mean, I, I did not look at him as a dog. I looked at him as, you know, as a, as a friend, as a family member, as a child. I mean, he was part of the family. So I, I basically then changed to understand what dogs and how animals mean to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, my daughter, who is an attorney, wrote an article uh, on animal abuse and serial killers and how most of the serial killers always abused animals or killed animals prior to turning on humans. And I just couldn't believe that. Uh, so I started researching, and, and what I found, uh, it, it made me sick and turned me into a monster, per se, uh, because I realized that, wow, how did I miss this? How in the world... That I've spent all these years in law enforcement and all this stuff right under my nose, yeah. and we didn't even know it. And then once I started looking, I realized we still don't get it. I went to a DOJ listing session on animal abuse, and not one law enforcement uh, person was in that room. And I'm thinking, this is the problem. I mean, you all are talking about the issues, but the people who are first and foremost in the front line of that aren't even at the table. Uh, so I just kind of went on a... a you know, a mission um, of being the uh, chief operating officer at the National Sheriff's Association. My um, CEO and executive director, along with the board, were very, um, very good about letting me move forward in this issue. And um, we started uh, training. We started uh, giving information out. Uh, at first, it was tough. Uh, it wasn't a hard sell. It was just to get them to understand was the hard sell, but they once they saw it and they got it, mm. there was no resistance. And I still don't today, after years later, see any resistance to the information that we're delivering. And again, it goes back to what I said earlier with domestic violence, is that we resisted the whole concept of domestic violence. Our, our culture and our thoughts were, if the woman wanted to leave the house, then we were giving her that opportunity. And if she didn't want to leave, then, you know, what's nothing we could do? Uh, You know, she just would have to stay there and deal with what she had to deal with. But little did we know there were many reasons why 
the woman wouldn't leave the house. And many times now we're finding out it's because of the animal, because the animal's been threatened, and they just won't leave that animal in that kind of condition. People are getting the message, and just like your show, it, it'll get to more people. Uh, it'll keep spreading. And one day we'll be talking about another issue, and we'll be relating back to this one as we do domestic violence. Okay, so there is a training simulator that's been developed and deployed. Tell us about that. Yes. Uh, so we, you know, we, we we're really looking at trying to find the right training scenario. There's some training out there, uh, and we've been really looking, trying to find how do we do this and how do we develop this with law enforcement so that uh, it works for them. And so we actually got a hold of a, a virtual reality uh, company called Virtua, and we asked them would they be willing to work with us on you know, developing this training. And they were very amenable to it, and they, uh, years, uh, a little over a year's worth of work into it, and creating scenarios, and and you know doing the, doing it in a scientific approach. Uh, they ended up rolling out this training that we have, and the benefits of it is that when you go in it, it's a 360 environment. So when you're standing there dealing with the the, the situation in front of you, to the right or left of you, a dog may come charging at you, or the dog may come charging at you from the front. And depending on what you do uh, is the way the scenario will will then go to the next scene because they'll have an operator and he, he then puts it into the next scenario based on the action that you take. Mm. And I will tell you now that you can sit in any class you want. And, and again, I think all training of any kind or any amount of time in this area is beneficial. I can tell you that I've been on the street, and even being in that scenario, you almost get that feeling that it's real. And that's why the training's successful, because it makes you, uh, you, you know, your, your emotions are reacting as you're training. It's not like sitting and listening to somebody lecture to you. So have you received feedback from other officers who have received training and then encountered animals in the field? Yes. Now, we just rolled this out a couple months ago, okay. so it's, it's very new, but everybody who's gone through it, uh, everybody who's uh, demonstrated it is, just was impressed with it. There, there needs to be some more work done in uh, scenarios, especially with uh, SWAT teams and you know, uh, entry, uh, entry teams, because these scenarios are basically the type that you see and you deal with out in the public. Uh, but we also have to continue to develop this training for for our SWAT and entry teams, because that's when a lot of incidents happen during those type of, uh, you know, those type of operations. So we're going to continue to move it forward. And part of it also is a face-to-face training that we've developed along with it that we can do without the simulator. But, uh, but absolutely, hands down, nothing really compares to doing it in the simulator. Is the simulator in a fixed uh, location, and uh, how do police departments access it? Well, we have a we have a, a smaller unit that's not the 360 version that we can take out with us to train. But generally, the agencies already have these simulators. They've they've already purchased them and they use them for other type of uh, law enforcement incidents. And they just never was a uh, a dog encounters component to it. So by adding this component to the already uh, equipment they already use, uh, just gives them another level of training in this area. That's great. Well, it's really exciting. Where can people go online to see what this looks like and to maybe watch some video of it? Yeah, it's uh, sheriffs.org slash L-E-D-E-T. And actually, there'll be a, they can see a demonstration of it. There's some uh, press release, pretty much everything that you need. 
Really appreciate it. John Thompson with National Sheriff's Association. Thank you so much. Great work. Okay, thank you. More with animals today after this break. Hey, it's Dr. Lori. You're listening to Animals Today, now celebrating a decade of weekly broadcasts. Each show, we bring you news about animals from around the world, descriptions about the challenges they face, and ideas on how each of us can help create a more compassionate world. We are proud to have had government leaders on Animals Today to advocate for animals, including U.S. Representative from California, Ted Lieu, U.S. Representative from Pennsylvania, Tom Marino, California Assemblymember Richard Bloom, and others. We really appreciate our elected officials who work on behalf of animals, and we thank you. So make sure to join us each week right here on AnimalsTodayRadio.com or on iTunes because we are your home for serious talk about animals. And if your leaders in government deserve praise or criticism, let us know. And thanks for listening. Today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of 8 to 9 feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. Welcome back to Animals Today. Healthy Paws Pet Insurance came out with the top 10 reasons for a pet parent to bring their dog or cat to the veterinarian. So starting with the dogs, top 10 reasons dogs visited the vet, and this is over a one-year period, June 2017 through June 2018, going from the most to least common, skin conditions was the top ailment seen by vets for dogs at 22%, followed by stomach issues, then ear infections, eye conditions, pain, growths, urinary tract infections, allergies, cruciate ligament injuries. We're too familiar with those, right, Peter? Yep. And finally, cancer. Hmm. For cats, the most common reasons cats visit the vet is stomach issues at 20%, followed by urinary tract infections, skin conditions, cancer, eye conditions, ear infections, pain, growths, foreign body obstruction, and finally, allergies. So skin conditions, number one issue in dogs, and stomach issues, number one problem in cats. And interesting, both stomach issues and skin problems were one of the top three ailments seen at the vet for both dogs and cats. Some notable differences, cat vet visits for cancer was 12%. And for dogs, cancer was only 4%. Urinary tract infection in cats seemed to be a lot more prevalent at 13% than for dogs, which was at 6% of visits. Also, I find it interesting that although only 3% of visits were for foreign body obstructions in cats, foreign body obstruction didn't even appear as one of the top 10 ailments for dogs. I find this whole thing fascinating. A little bit sad. We have experienced in probably all these diagnoses and all these animals. And uh, it reminds me how many 
phone calls and how many vet visits we've had for big and small emergencies over the years, uh, yep. plus a lot of orthopedic surgeries in, in our uh, portfolio, right? Right. And many. Okay, you're listening to Animals Today. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Did you know that there's a rescue and sanctuary, especially for blind cats? When I heard about them, I thought to myself, this is really neat, and I want to learn more. A place where cats who have lost their vision can live happily. So I'm very pleased to welcome Alana Miller, president of Blind Cat Rescue. Welcome, Alana. Thank you so much for having us. Alana, what is Blind Cat Rescue, and why did you start it? Well, we are a lifetime care sanctuary for blind, leukemia-positive, and FIV-positive cats. And why did I start it? Because I was crazy. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. There was, an, there was a need. There was an, actual, there was an absolute need. Blind cats were pretty much automatically killed in most shelters because there was no place for them. And where are you located? And tell us about your facility. We're, we're in St. Paul's, North Carolina. When we started, we were just operating out of my house for the first year or two, raised enough money to build a couple little buildings that just housed 12 cats in each building. And then, then we got serious and eBay, less eBay, got involved. eBay has a wonderful program where their sellers and buyers can make donations to charities. And that just blew up. I laugh. I say eBay built our buildings because that's the truth. Uh, we raised enough money to build a large shelter facility. And then a few years later, we raised enough to build a second building, which houses our leukemia and FIV positive cats. Oh, that is fantastic. So what is life like for a cat who can't see or who has limited vision? Can they have a good quality of life? They don't know they're blind. We don't tell them. <laughs> you know, they know their cats. And they act just like cats. They chase toys. They run up climbers. We have um, a bunch of the wheel walk wheels for the cats, wheel walkers. And they run on wheels. They gallop on wheels. They don't know they're blind. So they live like a normal cat. So a blind or visually impaired cat can live in a regular home, right? They don't need to go to a specialty sanctuary like yours? Absolutely. We have lots of supporters that have blind cats. I, keep, I, I preach to the choir. A blind cat does not know they're blind. They know they're cats. They act like cats. They can live in a regular house because they're cats. They act like cats. You know, they find their litter boxes. They know where the food bowl is. They know, where, they know how to climb on top of the refrigerator. Crafty little boogers. They'll yeah. climb up the curtains if they're young. I mean, they're cats. They act like cats. Can you explain to my listeners what causes cats to become blind? The biggest portion of the blind cats are because of sheer neglect from their first owners. Isn't that sad? Yes. Antibiotics would have kept these cats from being blind. Wow. The biggest portion of our blind cats. Upper respiratory infections that are not treated will become bad eye infections, and that will make them become blind. Now, we've had some over the years that have become blind from untreated diabetes, just like with humans, uh, hypertension, just like with humans. Some of them have been born blind. We have several, two or three that have been born blind. Born blind. We have one that's blind and deaf. Um, and then some of them had from trauma. You know, I think we had a couple from being hit by cars. But the uh, majority were from neglect from the very first owner. So people, if your cat's got snot pouring out of the nose and got a cold, Take them to the vet, please, before it becomes an eye infection and before they lose their sight. Yes, very good information. Now, as you mentioned earlier, you also serve a different category of cats who are hard to adopt. Those are feline leukemia or feline immunodeficiency virus. Tell us about those cats and what you're doing for them. FIV and FELD cats are 
there'll be, let's face it, you know, there's no long line saying, oh, let me have a cat that's going to pass away in the next couple of years. We try to give them the best quality of life that they can have for the time that they have. Sadly, leukemia cats do not have a long life, you know, longevity. Three or five is pretty typical of a cat that has a chronic infection. Uh, some are less, some are more. We've got a couple that are around seven or eight. FIV cats can live a nice, long life. And people, vets, I get so frustrated with vets. You've got me when I'm on a rampage today. That's okay. Uh, vets do not stay up current on their con ed. FIV cats can live safely in a house with negative cats. Right. All studies prove it. Mm. We have positives and negatives together. It's only spread by deep, bloody, biting, fighting. Most of them are male, living on the streets, unfixed. You fix them, give them food, they have nothing to fight about. We've had big old Tom cats, so I'm thinking to myself, Oi, this guy's going to be a fighter. No, they're lovers. They like, usually they're very socialized, the other cats. And once they don't have to fight for food and they're fixed, they have no reason to fight. They're, they become just wonderful pets. So they live with you until they pass away, and they must have a pretty good quality of life until then, right? We sure try to. Try to give them the best quality of life possible. Now, people can watch the cats live on video. Is that right? Absolutely. We have a zillion cameras in this place. You can watch them playing, sleeping, see the staff cleaning, eat, feeding them, you name it. You can watch it. You can go to our website, blindcatrescue.com, and click on Watch Us. And there's a link there for you to be able to watch all the cameras. You'll see them running the wheels. You'll see them doing cat things. Any messages for my listeners? Adopt from your local shelter. Fix your animal. Thank you. If you see a stray out there, help it out. Fix it at least. Feed it. Find it a home. President of Blind Cat Rescue, Alana Miller. You guys are doing a phenomenal job. Thank you for all your great work for the cats. Well, thank you so much for having us. Appreciate it. Check them out, blindcatrescue.com. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.